to your word as we study your attributes that you might uh, challenge us, uh, we might grow in the knowledge of our God, that it might impact the way we live in our lives each and every day, and that you might be with all of the classes as they meet, that uh, as your word goes forward, that the Spirit would do his work, uh, work of salvation, work of uh, sanctification in the, in the hearts as appropriate. Uh, even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So we're going to read from um, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and um, this really will pertain to looking at God's will, which we'll, we should get to that in the latter part of today, and, um, and so that's why we're going to read this section, speaking about all things happen according to God's sovereign will, that God is in control of all things, and uh, one of God's attributes will be to look at his will. And uh, so that's what we will do after we look at jealousy and wrath. Those aren't, uh, those will probably take, take about 20 minutes or so each, and uh, my best guess, and, uh, and then we can move over to God's will. So Ephesians 1, 3 to, 3 to um, 14, and bear in mind as we're reading this, we're really seeing the, just the complete and total sovereignty of God over all things, everything. I mean, it says all things, and it means all things. We see this in particular in regards to our redemption, our salvation. Uh, and, uh, and so just bear that in mind then. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amazing passage of scripture, to say the least. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in due course. So we're at the point where we look at God's jealousy, one of God's, one of God's communicable attributes, jealousy. Now, although we use the word jealousy in a negative sense, and I think most of the time we actually use that term, we, we often uh, will use that, again, in, in a negative sense. But you can also use it in a positive sense, and that's the way the, the Scripture uses it when it speaks of our God. For example, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says, I, I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says of the Corinthian church. And so what Paul is emphasizing, as uh, we know, is a protective, a watchful concern for the church. And jealousy can also have the meaning of being committed to seeking the honor or welfare of someone else. And this is the way the scripture represents God as being jealous. He seeks his own honor, and he will not share his glory or honor with anyone else. And the Bible makes this very clear. And so God continually and earnestly seeks to protect his own honor. And so in the scriptures we read, God commands his people not to bow down to idols or serve them. So saying, um, uh, saying the following in Exodus 20, verse 5, For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. He desires that worship be given to him alone and not to false gods or anything else in all the creation. 
Nothing is to be given honor or worship but God and God alone. As a result, he commands the people of Israel to tear down all the altars of the pagan gods in the land of Canaan. And we read about that uh, repetitively in the Old Testament because they had a habit, a very bad habit, of worshiping everything but the true God. And, uh, and that was, of course, the sin of Israel and the sin of all of us in our fallen states. We will worship anything but God. We will you know, create idols of everything in the creation if we have a chance. And uh, what is the reason why God gives for the people to tear down all these idols? He says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God's name is Jealous. That's repeated a number of times in the Old Testament. God says, my name is Jealous. So Dr. Grudem, in defining jealousy, says the following. He says, God's jealousy may be defined as follows. God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. Very simple definition. God wants to protect his own honor. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, in the, um, another systematic text that um, he co-authored, says the following. He says, God's jealousy is his protectiveness of all that belongs to him. This includes himself, his name, glory, people, his right to receive worship, and ultimate obedience in all his creation. And so what you have here, basically, is you have a creator-creature distinction. God is the creator. He's the eternal God. We've looked at his attributes, uh, especially the incommunicable attributes. And God is awesome. He's the independent God. needs nothing outside of himself. He alone is God. Everything else has been created. And nothing in the created order should receive honor, praise, and worship but God alone. And that's the, you know, the basic um, and, and critical teaching we have in the scriptures. I mean, the first commandment is, again, how, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the only true and the living God. So there's many scriptural references. Let me just give you a few in terms of God's jealousy. Um, God's name is jealous, and that's in Exodus 34, 14. 34, 14. We won't look at all of these. I'm just going to you know, sort of rattle them off. They're very important, but you can listen and absorb these. God is jealous to be the only God worshipped and served. And we see that in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 6, 1 Corinthians 10. Of course, this isn't just an Old Testament concept. It's very much alive in the New Testament, as we all know. God is jealous to be served as the holy God. And uh, we read this in Joshua 24, 19, James 4, 5. God jealously chastens sinning people. He jealously chastens sinning people. He wants them to give him the honor and glory, and he pulls them into line so that they will worship and serve him. God restores his people by his jealousy, which is a very interesting way to look, look at that, right? Because if God wants his honor and his glory protected, he will actually restore his people due to his promises and his covenant. And he will see to it that uh, they are restored so that they will give him the ultimate honor and glory. And he does that, again, according to his grace and mercy and his great covenants. God is jealous for his holy name and glory. We read that in Ezekiel 39, 25. God jealously takes vengeance on his enemies. He will protect his honor and glory, and he will mete out ultimately vengeance against those who oppose him so that he will get all the honor and glory. They will not. And God, by his jealousy, will establish the Messianic Davidic kingdom. We read about that in Isaiah 9. And so we see that God's jealousy has many different aspects to it, but it all gets down to giving him the honor and glory. The first place, the second place, the third place goes to God, and God alone. We are creatures, and that would be the case as, uh, even pre-fall. Pre-fall, we have to understand, we are creatures. And so we, would, we were created to worship God, to be in fellowship with God, and to glorify him forever. The fall made it infinitely worse, right? That brings this separation, this curse from God 
that needs to be restored so that we can have a restoration of relationship. And wow, is God ever gracious and merciful to do that? But the reality is, is that we're creatures and he's the creator. And we, we, you have to keep that, we have to keep that uppermost in our mind. We are just not all that important, right? We're, we're as important as God makes us to be, right? Um, and, uh, and we're not important in and of ourselves. And we're not to worship each other. And we're not to lift each other up and, and, and so forth. And so God comes first. Now, people sometimes have a trouble, trouble thinking that jealousy is a desirable attribute in God. I mean... This is a uh, very conservative, biblically-oriented church. We follow the Bible as our base. But if you were to walk into a lot of mainline churches and start talking about God as a jealous God, they would, they would sort of look at you and they think, like, wow, like, what are you talking about? Um, it wouldn't be something that uh, would be uppermost in their mind, especially as we look at wrath in a few moments. That's something that is just foreign to so many churches, a God who, a God of wrath. Um, and so... A lot of these teachings, again, people do not want to hold on to. They don't like them. They aren't comfortable with them. But we, we want to speak the way the Bible speaks. We want to reflect the way God reflects his truth to us and tells us that's what's important. And so a lot of times people don't like this. You know, God is a jealous God. My goodness. But this is because jealousy for our own honor as human beings is almost always wrong. And so we sort of place that upon God. And as creatures of God, we need to check our pride and focus on humility. Why? Because we're sinners and we're absolutely dependent on God for everything. We do not deserve the honor and glory that belongs to God and God alone. This is God's prerogative. It's not, it is not wrong for God to seek his own honor because he's worthy of all honor and praise. That's the point. God freely admits that his actions in creation and redemption are done for his own honor. Everything God does ultimately is to redound to his glory and his honor and his praise everything. And speaking of his decision to withhold judgment from his people, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. My glory I will give to, I will not give to another. And we read that repetitively in the Old Testament. God says, I give my glory to no one else. It's mine and mine alone. God is a jealous God. Read that in Isaiah 48, 11, one of the, one of the verses that will contain that expression. And it's a healthy for us spiritually when we settle in our hearts the fact that God deserves all honor and glory from his creation. And that it is right for us to seek his honor. He alone is infinitely worthy of being praised. And I think to realize this fact and to delight in it is to find the secret to true worship. If we really understand that the jealousy of God and why he is jealous and who God is, that should lead us to an enhanced ability to worship God and to really think about what we do even here on Sunday morning. This is a Sunday school class, but in our next worship hour, why are we here? We're here to worship the true and the living God. Um, and that's what we were created for. That's our highest purpose in our life. Um, and so it's, it's very important. What's heaven going to be like? It's going to be a place where all the glory, honor, and praise go to the triune God forever and ever. There'll be no idolatry in heaven, right? No idolatry. There'll be 100% all worship of God, the true and the living God. And so just a couple quick points of application in terms of jealousy. Um, number one, because God is a jealous God, Christians should turn away from anything that provokes his jealousy. That should be a, a foregone conclusion, right? We should be very careful that we don't do anything that makes God jealous. Do we reflect God's jealousy for his honor instinctively when we hear him being dishonored in our world, in our conversations, in the media or in other contexts? What can we do to deepen our jealousy for God's honor? You should ask that, that question. What can we do in our own lives to deepen our love for God so that we will be more jealous for God's honor and glory? That's the question we really should think about. Um, and I think the answer to that has to do with deepening our relationship with God. The deeper our relationship with God, the closer we walk with him, the more we know him through his word and through prayer and through communion, the more we will be jealous for God's honor and glory. Those two will go right together. And so from just from a word of application, we should be careful that we don't do anything that 
invokes God's jealousy. Be very careful about that. We should be quite the opposite. We should be jealous for God's honor and glory. Number two, because God is a jealous God, we should worship him in spirit and truth as the scriptures instruct us. We worship him with our hearts, our minds, rooted in the scriptures, not in man-made teaching. And so how do we worship God? We worship him in spirit and truth with our hearts and our minds. And we worship him based upon what God has given us in the scriptures, his revelation. And that's what he, that's what he wants of us as we go into the next hour to worship him, to worship him in spirit and truth um, and in his word and to come before him as creatures, um, thankful for the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. And then third, because God is jealous, we should be zealous to serve him and be fully committed to his church. Does this truth have any bearing on how we respond to the state when it tells us to shut down our worship services, whether it's for a virus or whether it's for climate change, right? You have to ask that question. We need to think about that. Do we shut down church because the government tells us to shut it down? Or do we come to worship God? What's the priority? Really, what is the priority? Is our triune God truly worthy of all praise, glory, and honor? One of the expressions I heard from the pastors who refused to close their churches over the last couple of years when the COVID situation was here, one of the expressions I heard most repeated, I think, and, you know, I asked Thomas or Harry, they can, they can validate this or not, was, the Lord is worthy of our worship. And I hadn't heard that as much before. And I'm, I'm 62, so that would have made me 59 at the time, I guess, right? Three years ago. And uh, I'd really hear about that in the church. Of course, you know, we we're here to honor God and stuff like that. But it really wasn't, is this going to cost us something? Are we actually going to worship God? Is that a priority over a virus? Which, as we know, was a hopped up virus in the, at the end of the day anyway. And you certainly knew that after a few months. Or are we going to shut down the church? and not worship? What's going to happen when they tell us that we have this existential crisis of climate change? Whatever the, whatever the next crisis is going to be that they're going to send at us, whatever. Are we going to stop our worship? Or is worship a priority? We have to ask that question. God is a jealous God. We're not to worship Doug Ford. Or Pierre, or, uh, Pierre yeah, still back in his father. Can't get over his father. Justin Trudeau or something like that. And I say this really seriously. This is a very serious point. Do, you know, where do we stand? And we need to really think that through. God is a jealous God, and he wants to be worshipped. And we're to meet together as a body of Christ to worship him, come what may. That's the reality. And I think we've seen the implications of that in Christendom, and certainly the evangelical community, and the devastation that it's created. People said this wasn't an important hill to die on. I'd argue, actually, it's probably the most important hill to die on. Are we going to worship? Right? That is the big hill. So, again, so we can think application. God is jealous. He desires our worship. He is worthy of it. And we're to honor him, first and foremost, over everything else. Over everything else. So, that's jealousy. Next, let's shift over to wrath. The wrath of God. The Bible speaks frequently about the wrath of God. This should not surprise us. Since God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, and he hates, the Bible says, anything that's opposed to his moral character. God's wrath, which is directed against sin, is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. And so you really, again, we're looking at these attributes, as I've said many times, individually, but they're all related and they all find their unity in God. And so we're not to compartmentalize them in one sense, but we're doing that because of our puny minds, and that's the way God has taught us about himself in his scriptures. But they're all interrelated. And so wrath has to ultimately be seen in terms of God's holiness and also his justice. Dr. Grudem says the following in terms of a definition for wrath. He says God's wrath can be defined as follows. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all, e all evil, all sin, it is his righteous judgment against sinful humanity. So it's, it's, it's this intense hatred of sin, of that which goes against the character of the infinite personal God. 
That's when we're talking about wrath. And so let me just give you five quick truths concerning God's wrath. Again, just to give some context for this. First of all, the Bible tells us that God's wrath is just. It's just. That's very important. The Bible tells us God's wrath is to be feared. It's to be feared. It's not something that we take lightly. Third, God's wrath is consistent in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll come back to that in a few moments because you'll see that uh, as many people argue that there's this divergence between the Old and New Testament when it comes to God's wrath. And um, no, 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 absolutely not. That's a, that's a horrible reading of the text. It's a, it's a, uh, a subjugation of the, of the text to truth. Um, fourth, God's wrath is, is his love in action against sin. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. You have to really think about that. We'll come back a little bit to some of these, these, these concepts in a moment. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. The fact that God is love means he hates sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a God of love. And therefore, sin has to be punished if he's, if he's just and he's holy. And you see all these all work together. A love that doesn't hate sin isn't love. That's the problem with our world. Eh? Love is love, as we've talked about before. Well, that's not true at all. Love is what God says it is, not what we think it is. In fact, we're the worst people to judge love because we're fallen creatures. Love is not love. Love is what God says it is, and love is who God is, and consistent with his nature and character and so forth. And then fifth, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ for the believer. And that's a wonderful, wonderful truth. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ for the believer. So descriptions of God's wrath are found throughout the scriptures, especially when God's people sin and disobey him. When God sees the idolatry of the people of Israel, he says to Moses the following, I have seen this people, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. Wow. Exodus 32, 9 to 10. Moses tells the people, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So Moses tells them that when you sinned so wickedly against God, you provoked his wrath. God hates sin. And he's angry with sin. And sin has to be dealt with. And we, we read that in, again, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and in 2 Kings 22. The doctrine of the wrath of God in scriptures is not limited to the Old Testament, as many have falsely taught, especially, uh, well, falsely taught right from the beginning of church history, right down to our current day. Many liberal theologians tell us that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Now, is that true? No, that's not true at all. We all know that. Nothing new under the sun, though. Um, we can actually go all the way back to Marcion, who was born in A.D. 85, who had an extensive and heretical ministry um, during sort of the 130s, 140s A.D., and he was saying the same thing right back in the early beginnings of the church. Marcion's theolo theological errors, and there were many, I mean, I'm not going to get into them, just the one talk about this particular area, came from one main root. He refused to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the Father of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Marcion did not believe in a God that was full of wrath and justice. Like many today, he threw away the Old Testament and took for his Bible an abridged version of Luke's Gospel, and he selectively edited to his liking Paul's epistles. So he starts going through the scriptures, picking and choosing what he wants. When all the cutting and pasting was completed, Marcion had the God he wanted, a God of goodness and nothing else. Of course, goodness defined by him, not biblical goodness. And that's very important to emphasize. A message of moral inspiration in a Bible that has nothing, uh, that he's not uncomfortable with, especially concerning the teachings of God's wrath and eternal hell. But today we have the same sentiment. That's not new. Marcion's not new. 
in our mainline denominations. You go into our any United Church, our Anglican churches, probably half the Presbyterian churches, and they do not believe in a God of wrath. Uh, a number of years ago, they, the Gettys were approached, and they were asked to pull the phrase, in, in, God we, in, in, in Christ alone, I should say, where there's the expression, in, poured out his wrath, and they, they, they said, no, we're not going to pull that out because that's why it was put in there. We, that's the biblical truth. So we live in an age where many of our Christians, you know, people who call themselves Christians, really don't believe in the wrath of God. But the wrath is a biblical teaching. It's an essential teaching. And uh, we want to be very careful. In Canada, churches like the Meeting House with disgraced pastor Bruxy Cavey would fall into this camp also. And that's closer to home, although, you know, hopefully not very close to our home in terms of theological alignment. Unfortunately, I say that in all, all due, all due uh, concern. Remember that only five years ago, Katie was the pastor of one of the largest churches in Canada, taught at Tyndale Seminary, and spoke at numerous Christian conferences each year and claimed to speak on behalf of conservative Christians. Yet he rejected the penal substitutionary death of Christ that focuses on the truth that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, the Father, on the cross and for those who put their faith and trust in him. This is essential, essential doctrines, essential teaching concerning the wrath of God. Cavey said the following, I quote, just to give you a sense of just right up to date, here in Canada, one of the largest evangelical, you know, evangelical churches in quote, um, this is what they're talking about. And right now, I, I suspect the meeting house is even worse. I just went on their website early this morning just to check out what's going on there. I haven't been on there for years. It's horrific. It just don't even, I mean, it's just what's being taught and the, you know, the people doing it and so forth. It's so far off. It's so far off uh, anything that's biblical. It's ridiculous. But this is what Cavey was teaching. I quote, when it comes to the actual act of killing and wrathing, he says, the only wrath that is expressed at the cross is the wrath of us against Christ, not the wrath of the Father upon Christ. This is wrath poured out on Jesus, that is, the wrath of the religious leaders and the wrath of the Roman soldiers. It is the wrath of humanity and sin. God comes in and raises Jesus from the dead. So he's saying any wrath there, it's the wrath of the people upon Christ. It's not God putting his anger and his wrath upon Christ. Complete rejection of the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the biblical teaching. Um, but why is that? Because Bruxy doesn't want a God of wrath. He doesn't like it. Doesn't fit with his narrative and his folksy presentation that he gives. He used to give at his church and so forth. But is it biblical? That's the key. Is it consistent with what God says of himself? No. And so we have to be very, very careful. What does Jesus say in John 3.36? He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. The words of Christ himself. Paul says, in many, many places, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. And you can turn to see that in Romans 1, where he catalogs the pouring out of God's wrath on a culture, on a society that turns and does not remember God. See it in... Uh, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 5, Romans 9, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 3, Revelation 6, Revelation 17. I mean, I could just go on and on in terms of the wrath of God. And, and you know, is the, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the New Testament? There's no wrath in the New Testament? No. The ultimate pouring out of wrath was on Christ on the cross. How can you possibly say God is not a God of wrath? Christ had to satisfy the punishment that was due us. And this takes place in the New Testament. And, uh, and so, again, you see, people just want to get rid of any notion of, uh, of wrath and, uh, and just sort of God into this little sort of grandfather that's up in the sky that loves everybody. That's not the biblical teaching. Nor is that the God that we want. Nor is that the God that is worthy of worship. I mean, that destroys our hope. That destroys our certainty, our faith, our confidence in who God is. That's just a God of our own making. And that's why God's a jealous God, because we want to do everything we can to make gods in our own image and not the way God really is. Um, 
As with other attributes of God, this is an attribute for which we should thank and praise God. Why? For many, the idea of God's wrath is a horrible concept in teaching. Viewed on its own, wrath does and should arouse fear and dread. But it's helpful for us to, to ask, what would God be like if he were a God that did not hate sin? What would that mean to us in our world we live in? What would God be like if he either delighted in sin or was not troubled by sin? Can you imagine the horror of that thought? Such a God would not be worthy of our worship, for sin is hateful and is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It's an abnormality in God's universe that God is going to destroy. It is a virtue to actually hate evil and sin. Turn, just turn to one verse there. I didn't write it down, um, the full verse, but in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 9, Hebrews 1, chat, verse 9, it says, uh, of God, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Speaking of the Son, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's a beautiful thing. Because that means we live in a moral universe. And that means good is going to triumph. Not evil. And that means that God's nature and character are true and eternal, and he will ultimately judge all evil. And so we're to imitate this attribute of God when we feel holy hatred against evil and against injustice and against sin. We also are to hate sin. And we're to hate sin because it's, it's the opposite of God, and it's dishonoring to God, and it takes us further from God, and it separates us from God, and it's what put Christ on the cross to die for our sins. And it's important to point out that as Christians, we should not fear God's wrath. We should have respect for it, but fear in terms of, of uh, in, uh, immobilizing us. Because as the scriptures tell us, we were by nature, this is in Ephesians 2, 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But since we've trusted in Jesus, in 1 Thessalonians it says, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if we're Christians, we don't fear God's wrath in the sense of it immobilizing us. We should have respect and remember that God is a God of wrath and we want to be obedient and reverent. But as Christians, we can also remember that God has delivered us in Christ from the wrath to come. What a beautiful, what a beautiful truth, right? We are delivered from the wrath to come, right? Wonderful, wonderful, glorious truth of the redemption we have in Christ. When we meditate on the wrath of God, we, are to, we, should, we should be amazed to think that our Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God that was due our sin in order that we might be saved, right? So we, that's where we should, our minds should really shift is that how awesome and how incredible it is that, that Christ would take God's wrath upon himself, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God, the maker of the universe would die for us and take that wrath so that we can be delivered from the wrath to come. And we have that righteousness. Those beautiful verses in Romans 3, 25 and 26, that we have this righteousness that was revealed apart from the law in Jesus Christ. So in addition to thinking about God's wrath, we should also consider his patience along with that. Both patience and wrath are mentioned together in Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, we read, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. That's a beautiful truth. In fact, the delay in the execution of God's wrath upon evil is for the purpose of leading people to repentance. We read that in many places in the New Testament. We see that in Romans 2.4. We also read that in 2 Peter. When we think of God's wrath to come, we should be thankful for his patience in waiting to execute that wrath in order that more people may come into his kingdom that uh, the elect would be saved. We read in 2 Peter 3, 9, and 10 the following, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. And so part of the delay of seeing God's wrath meted out is his patience and his forbearance so that more can enter into the kingdom, right? 
So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you can thank him for his patience. And you should flee to Christ this morning, immediately, so that you will be saved from the wrath to come. Because it's coming. And it will be worked out perfectly. And God's going to balance all the books. No one gets away with any sin. It's either balanced on the back of Christ through his sacrificial death, or you're going to have to take it forever and ever and ever. Now, the wrath of God should motivate us, you know, just practically to evangelism, and it should also cause us to be thankful that God will finally punish all wrongdoing and will reign over the new heavens and new earth where there will be no unrighteousness. There'll be no unrighteousness. This is why we are not bothered in the least. We're actually pleased, or at least we're, we're happy that God is holy and has wrath and love and mercy and grace, and he holds all these together because that's what ultimately will give us that universe for eternity that will be worth living in, and we'll want to be there. It'll be a perfect place, perfect. There'll be no unrighteousness. Should we love the fact that God is a God of wrath who hates sin? Let me ask that question. Should we love the fact that God is a God of wrath and, and hates sin? What's your answer? Yes, yes, right. I hope everybody has a better appreciation of that, even though we just looked at it for about 20, 25 minutes. But uh, hopefully everyone has a better appreciation of that. We're not, again, we hold wrath in balance with all of the other things, and wrath is necessary. It's a necessary part of who God is. And we're thankful that God is a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy and grace and love and patience and forgiveness and so on. Right? All these come together perfectly in God. And uh, is it right for us to imitate this wrath in ways that uh, are not wrong so that we also will be passionate about hating sin? And so that's an encouragement for us. We should, you know, for the right, right reasons, we hate sin because it's, it's an affront against God. That's why we hate it. We should hate our own sin, and we should oppose uh, when we see sin transacted in the world in which we, which we live. So God's wrath, his jealousy and his wrath. And uh, so let me just stop for a second before we shift over to his attributes of purpose. We start with his will. Um, any comments, questions that one wants to make? I mean, I've gone through a fair bit of material, and some of this is... Uh, hopefully gets you thinking, and uh, it's, it's not light material in the sense of its importance and seriousness of what we're studying um, in terms of the attributes. Ian, I can see you. A lot yeah. of people think about God's wrath in terms of discipline and punishment, hmm. but what they don't realize is that God's discipline is always redemptive up until the point when it consummates history and it's all over. That's when it gets punitive for the people that haven't believed in him and rebelled against him. But as we go through our lives, God, and, and God deals with us, the discipline that God meets out to us is always redemptive to bring us back to where we should be. Yeah, certainly for the, for the Christian, it, it definitely is. All the, the discipline and the God stepping in on us because, in fact, if we are Christians and we're not disciplined, then God says, are we illegitimate? Are we real children of God? If we're real children of God, God will discipline us and pull us into line because he loves us. And um, he's going to be faithful to his, his promise to save us. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Six months. yeah. God's redemptive discipline. Yeah. Frank.
myself looking at it after quite often the, the concept of hell or the reality of hell is associated with God's wrath. And just looking at it, it's difficult to make the connection of God's wrath with this concept of you know, bland annihilation. Yeah. Um, it's, it just doesn't, just doesn't match up. No, I think, you know, Frank, that's a very good example of when people start to shift and they don't like certain biblical truths, and then they start to try to accommodate something that they believe is more palatable. I mean, one of the well-known theologians, um, uh, John Stott, was someone who believed also in annihilation quite incorrectly. And, um, and so, I mean, Bruxy Cavey, too, would, uh, he, he, would, he, would, he, he was evasive on hell, and he, he would sort of go in that direction somewhat, too. Like, he was very evasive, so it was hard to nail him down. On things. I mean, the very same words that are used for eternal life, everlasting life, are the same words of internal punishment. I mean, the language is the same. There's, 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 uh, there's obviously a complementary um, aspect to that. And um, the Bible in no way, nowhere teaches annihilation at all. No, it, te- it teaches a, a ongoing um, and ever reality of God's judgment forever and ever and ever. We are created as human beings to live forever, and God's going to keep us alive forever, and he's going to judge forever. The sad, re- you know, one of the horrible things when you think about hell, there's many horrible things about it. I mean, part of that is, if, and if you do think of hell for very long, it's a concept that is really um, mind-numbing. I mean, it's very, very, um, you know, um, you can see why people, you know, step back from it, and we, it, it is, it is an awesome, con- you know, truth, and it is, it is horrifying to think that you can enter into a state and be under the judgment of a holy, infinite God and never have any relief, ever, forever. I mean, no one want, you should, should, we should flee to Christ right away. I mean, that is a horrible, it is awful to think of, right? But then when you, when you really consider, you put these truths together uh, that the scripture gives us, I mean, even in hell, there'll be no repentance. Then no one will turn to God. We're, we're so sinful that even under God's judgment, we will be angry for the rest of our lives and under judgment. Unless God saves us, we will never turn to him. And this is the, the issue, you know, uh, and then when Jesus, when you remember the, um, the parable, we talked about Lazarus and the rich man. They said, well, you know, just give us, give us more information. If someone comes back from the dead, Jesus says, well, you know, even if they come back from the dead, you won't believe, you know. And that's the hardness and the sinfulness of the human heart. And, um, but you're quite right in terms of that being example. As, the, as, as theology gets weakened and they say take, they weaken different attributes of God, like his wrath, like his holiness, and so forth, then the implication is you downplay things like hell. You have to. And then you come to things like annihilation. But um, the church would do well to think about these things uh, more often, and it would drive us to Christ would drive us to probably more, well, more evangelism, more concern for our neighbor, and more concern for the eternal destiny of the people that we love, because it is, um, it is an, awful, an awful and, uh, you know, thing to contemplate in terms of hell. Yeah, yeah. Any other, uh, other comments? But, uh, yeah, I mean, the mainline churches are... Uh, uh, and it's a missionary line. I mean, you know, we get into naming denominations here on the tape and so forth. But I mean, many of them are just, it's amazing how they're shifting so many different places. And uh, it's, uh, we must be consistent to scripture. Our views on these things, I mean, as you go through here, what I think or what Dr. Grudem thinks for that matter or someone in the United Church, it does not matter. It's what the Bible says. And so we always have to test everything by the scriptures or we're going to get ourselves into trouble very, very quickly. Um, all of us. And so it's always go back to the scriptures, understand the scriptures. That's why at this church we try to focus on the scriptures, exposit the scriptures. That's why Josh and anyone preaching is, spends the time in the scriptures. Let's look at what God says. That's what matters. What does God say? Not what our opinion is. Our opinion is not relevant unless it squares with the scriptures and we can back it up with the scriptures. Okay, anything, anything else? And I'll just shift over. Just do a little quick introduction to God's will. Okay. Okay, attributes of purpose. The first one is God's will. And let me just, we'll just touch on just some general ideas because uh, there are a few complexities when we look at God's will. But Dr. Grudem defines um, God's will as follows. He says, God's will is that attribute of God whereby he approves 
and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. <laughs> Which basically means his will is behind everything. <laughs> From self and all creation. And we read that in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, right? God's will is sovereign and everything in this world ultimately is according to his plan. There's no chance back of God, as Francis Schaeffer used to always say. No chance back of God. There's no chance in this world. All this world is ordered and structured by God. Dr. MacArthur, in his um, systematic work, says the following. He says, God will is his perfect determination and sovereign ordination of all things pertaining both to himself, including all his decrees and actions, and to his creatures creation, including the events of history and the thoughts and actions of people, all unto the magnification of his utmost glory. And so we see, again, God's will is comprehensive. God's will is sovereign, and God is in control of all events, all events. There's no chance in the world. And so let's just look at God's will in general, God's will in general, and then we're going to look at, we're going to break God's will. That won't be this week, probably, but uh, in three weeks' time, I guess, because next week we're going to have the, um, the team from Cat Lake is going to be speaking, and then the week after that, TBS is going to have a team here. So we'll pick this up in uh, three weeks. I think it's the 26th. When we think of God's will, you can think of God's necessary will and God's free will. And you can then look at God's um, uh, decretive will, the decrees, or the secret will, uh, those are interchanged, same thing, or his, um, his revealed will, which is his perceptive will, his precepts. Those are, the, those are the ways we're going to basically look and divide things up in terms of God's will. This is, of course, we're doing that because that's biblical, and the biblical way to build this up. So necessary, free, and then his revealed will and his secret will. So before we get right there, let's just think of God's will in general. Scripture frequently indicates God's will as the final or ultimate reason for everything that happens. Paul refers to God as the one who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And we read that in Ephesians 1. The phrase here translated all things is used frequently, frequently by Paul to refer to everything that exists um, in creation. I mean, he's not leaving anything out. And Paul uses that expression in Ephesians 1, 10, verse 23, Ephesians 3, 9, Ephesians 4, 10, Colossians 1, 16, Colossians 1, 17, Romans 11, 36, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28, just to give you a sample that, you know, this isn't just one verse, but this is just pervasive throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, but we're speaking here, again, in terms of Paul, that for Paul, God's will is behind everything. Nothing's excluded. All creation falls under God's sovereignty. And the word translated um, in many of these expressions accomplishes or works out. Often it says accomplishes um, all things. That's a present participle suggesting continual activity. So the phrase could be translated, God who continually brings about everything in the universe according to the counsel of his will. That's a great way of looking at it. In other words, today. Why, why are things happening today, tomorrow, the next day? It is happening because God is involved in his creation at all times, past, present, future. He controls everything. It doesn't stop. It's not like we look back, God did this and stop. Continual activity. God is in control. And um, all things were created by God's will. Um, and we read this, in, we read this verse in uh, Revelation 4.11. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's around the throne room of heaven. One of the cries around the throne room of heaven is, you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we're in heaven, we might be crying that out. Crying out to God. You know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we, will, we also will cry, again, you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Both the Old and New Testament speak of human government is coming 
um, about according to God's will. Um, the voice from heaven tells Nebuchadnezzar, remember the voice that came down from uh, heaven speaking of Nebuchadnezzar in uh, Daniel chapter 4. What did the Lord say to Nebuchadnezzar? He says that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Your rule, your reign, you're my person. I control you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are sitting on that throne because of my sovereign will. And Nebuchadnezzar, had, he, he, he got the message right, after a little while, as we know the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And Paul says that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All authority is to God. So we'll pick this up on the, on the 26th, and we'll look at God's will. We'll break it into those categories and see how that can help us understand how God controls the universe that uh, we live in. Okay, so let's just end in a word of prayer now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures which reveal uh, your truth to us. It reveals who you are, and so that we can know the true and the living God. And we praise and thank you for this. We thank you that you are a perfect God. You are the holy God, a just God, a righteous God, a God of love, mercy, grace, and, and wrath, and that you hate sin. And we thank you for who you are. We we are here to give you all honor and glory and praise as your creatures and as your fallen creatures who you have graciously redeemed. And so we pray that you be with us. We pray that we might have a holy jealousy for your honor and glory, that we also would hate sin and that uh, we would be those that uh, seek to serve you and to love you with all of our hearts. Be with us now as we have the privilege of worship as we enter into the high point of our week, the beginning of this week, and we have the privilege of coming into your presence and worshiping you. We pray that we might worship you in spirit and truth. And 